We start a new series this week. It's entitled, The Little Foxes. And we have come to this in preparation of Thanksgiving, of this time of gratitude. And people seem to be thinking of gratitude around this time of year anyway, thinking of times that we are thankful for things, that we're grateful for things, that we just want to have the heart of God in everything that we do, the harvest time, the end of the year. Gratefulness seems to be always lacking in a way. Um, The little foxes for me represent these little creature habits that we all struggle with, that we all kind of come into relationships with, that we always kind of come into situations with, and we just have something that always gets put in front of what we are trying to do. Song of Solomon 2.15 says, Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. And that's where this title comes from. The series originally started as a relationship series, as a series that we were going to walk through and say, what are these little foxes that ruin the vineyards and everything that we do? What are these little creature habits that we have in our hearts, in our minds, in our relationships with one another that we struggle to comprehend, that we struggle to move to the next level, where we start to say, Um, I'm not as happy as I could be. I'm not dealing with another person the way that I ought to be. But it didn't really feel right as a relationship series. It didn't really feel like it was existing in the realm that I wanted it to do. So I put it on the shelf and I prayed through it. And I said, give me your heart, God. What does this series look like to you? What is this meant to be? And what kept coming up was you are terrible at gratitude. You, you are terrible at gratitude. You can do better with gratitude. You can be more grateful for the things that you have in your life. You can do better in those areas. And I said, God, yes, but what do you want the series to be about? I know I can do better gratitude, but what do you want the series to be about? And he said, you're bad at gratitude. What are you not understanding about this? And so I was finally like, okay, all right, we'll make it about gratitude. We'll make it about the enemies of gratitude. These little foxes, these little creatures that come into our world and rob us of what we have been uh, given, that we've been blessed with. And as I looked at my own life, there were places that I was standing in my own way, places that I would be receiving things, receiving God's blessing, hearing from God, doing the things that God had called me to do, responding to his word faithfully. And yet I was ungrateful for those things that I had been given, ungrateful for those moments that God said, plant a church, and I did. I planted a church, and then the room didn't fill up the way that we thought it would because there were times that I was preaching to three people on a Sunday morning, and I thought, God, where is the growth? Where are the people? Where, why haven't they come? We've been in this for a while, and it seems to me as though I'm doing the things that you've called me to do. I've gone the places that you want me to go, and yet here we are. And God was working on my own heart, and he said, you know what? That's a little bit ungrateful. Because in March of 2022, before we planted this, the first weeks, we had zero people at this church. And then when we planted, we started with 20 people. 
And so we went from a church of zero to a church of 20, and God still was working on my heart and saying, you know what? You're looking at the people that are not here. You're looking at the space that yet still needs to be filled. Don't worry about those things. I will provide. I will do those things for you. Be grateful for the 20 that you have. How can you minister to the people that you have now instead of worrying about the people that are yet to come here? I was struggling to be grateful for what I had. And I talked to my church planning coach about it, and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm feeling very frustrated. I'm feeling very, you know, very disappointed in God. I, I feel called to do this, and yet I don't see God anywhere in this whole thing. And he said, what would it look like for you to practice gratefulness? What would it look like for the most grateful version of yourself just to arrive on the scene now? And I said, well, um, I'm already pretty grateful, obviously. I've got those things down. Um, but I said it would, be, it would be as if my joy was back because I wasn't so concerned about the people that weren't here, the people that weren't in the room, but the people that I had now that God had given It robs our joy, these little foxes. It robs our ability to be in the moment. Instead of ministering to the people I have, I minister to the people I don't have yet and think about them. And those things are important. We need to pray for the church. We need to pray for growth. We need to pray for unbelievers. But I was so concerned about them and not concerned enough about the room of people that had already listened to God's voice. When we come to a moment in Exodus in the story that is so important and so powerful to the people, it's Paul's most important story, it's Jesus' most important story, it's Peter's most important story, it's all the first century church's most important story, and that is of the Exodus. Because where the people were in slavery, then they are released from that slavery by God. But things happen in those moments. We get to those places of emptiness and loneliness and isolation. So I want to read what happens here in Exodus 17. And if you're not familiar with Exodus, they have been released from Pharaoh's care in Egypt. God has said, this is the thing that I'm going to do for my people. I'm going to make you great. And he calls Moses on the Mount Horeb where he talks to the bush, the burning bush. And Moses goes and confronts Pharaoh and says, listen, this is what's going to be happening. You're going to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, they're slaves. They are my slaves. I'm not letting them go. They're building me great monuments. They're talking and and doing great things for me. God can't have them. And Moses said, well, we're going to leave this city and we're going to go and worship our God at the mountain that he's called us to do that at. And so each time Moses went to Pharaoh, he said, no, 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 his hardened of heart. And then the Passover happens where the firstborn of Egypt was killed. And Pharaoh finally acquiesces and says, you may go. And as they're going, he changes his mind. And coming down the hill toward the Sea of Reeds, what we know is the Red Sea, the armies of Pharaoh in all of his chariots and horses, he, they're coming down the hill. And they're in this place. The chariots are coming. The sea is there. What are we going to do, God? And so Moses lifts his staff and he puts it over the water and the waters part and they walk through. And just as 
Pharaoh's army comes down, the waters collapse. It's almost like a movie. And so the people get to the other side, and then there's this beautiful hymn. The, the first worship song is listed there in Exodus 15, where Miriam dances with the tambourine, and they all praise God for his great deliverance in this moment, to be God's people here. And then just one and two chapters later, we've forgotten all of that. We've acted as though God hasn't been around, that God hasn't provided, that God hasn't. And so in chapter 17, just two chapters removed from the parting of the sea, it says this. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of Sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Why are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you at the rock of Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Moses named the place Massah, which means test, and Mirabah, which means arguing, because the Lord, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? From the outset of this passage, the Israelites leave the Sin Desert. They end up in Rephidim, the last stop before the wilderness of Sinai, and like many other locations in Exodus, scholars do not know Rephidim's exact location. But what we do know is that Rephidim is within the Sinai Peninsula, a vast and barren desert. The lack of water there is a serious and life-threatening problem, even in modern times. Vegetation of any sort is difficult to find amidst this wasteland. Yellow, tan, and brown hues dominate the landscape. Few words are more likely to foreshadow death than there was no water for the people to drink. Survival depends on water. Our bodies, our very selves, are about 60% water by weight. Every part of our bodies requires water to live. According to the Mayo Clinic, every cell, tissue, and organ in your body needs water to work. Water carries toxins away. It maintains temperature, it prevents joints from scraping, and it protects vital tissues. Now, waterless deserts are, in fact, very deadly even today. In June of 2017, migrants from Nigeria and Ghana were crossing the Sahara trying to reach Europe for a better life. Migrants just like in our story here when their bus broke down. Of 44 people died, including infants and children. 
Advice for recreational hikes and military maneuvers in the desert include charts of drinking water required for various levels of activity and temperature. In fact, one source has estimated that each person required six liters of water a day when crossing the Sinai. In perfect conditions, a human being can last about 100 hours without water. In conditions like the desert where it's 100 plus degrees and there is no transportation, that can be cut by a factor of maybe two and even three. So we're looking at a time of two, maybe three days maximum when you could have water present and live. Now this is a spiritual problem, but it's a deadly physical problem as well. And we know it all too well that even here in our state, in our own county, people had a hard time getting water. In the modern world, the people of Flint struggled for so long as their pipes turned to lead, as the lead leached into the water in their houses. And children kept showing up at the clinics with lead coursing through their bodies, hundreds of times stronger than was required by law. Water is essential to life. And so we can sort of look at the Jews in the desert wandering and say, you know what, I get it. They need water. They're complaining to Moses, they need water. Where is the water? And it is right for them to complain. When they need something so vital to their experience, when they need something so telling as the water, it's important for them to have it. But here's the problem. They can complain, they can argue, they can stress Moses out about all of this. But what does the complaining say about who they believe God is? God called them to this. God called them away. He is the provider of this moment. He is the one that says, come, follow me. Come to the wilderness. We will worship on the mountain. And yet the people look at Moses and say, what have you led us out to do? In verse 3, they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children and livestock with thirst? And here's the major problem. Here's the problem that they had in the desert. And here's the problem that's always laid on our hearts. Is that we believe that because God has delivered us from something, that he should provide for us. And yet we think that we might have been better off before God called us. We might have been better off in Egypt. We might have been better off as slaves building temples and majestic monuments to Pharaoh. We might have been better off if we had not taken this job, or we might have been better off if we hadn't had married this person or met this person or continued to talk to this person in our lives. We are in these moments in the desert, this isolation. And God has led us to these points so that we will be faithful and trust him and trust his provision. And yet we complain as people and we open our mouths and we say, God, are you sure this is what you want from me? Are you sure you wanted to lead me to the desert? Because I don't have any water here. I don't have any food here. 
And we just continue to walk around aimlessly. We continue to move from one barren location to the next. It doesn't seem to me, God, that you understand what you're doing. I think I was better off back in Egypt. At least there, I had water and I had food and I could have my fill of it. Sure, I was going to die there, but at least I would have been comfortable when I died. Here in the desert, I'm uncomfortable. I, I don't want to be here. I had a house back there. I had friends and family. I've had to give all that up because you have called me to this lonely place. But God's reply to Moses includes instructions for striking the rock and a promise that water will flow from it for the people to drink. But here's something else it comes with, something unexpected that we don't believe God does always in our lives. He says in verse five, I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. I will be standing there with you. Not only am I going to provide for you, not only am I going to get water from a rock, which is a miracle in itself, I, my very presence will go before you and I will be waiting for you. So I know you can't feel me. I know you can't see me. I know that you are hungry and thirsty and we have big issues with your morale here in the camp. But guess what? I am here with you. I am here in your presence with you. For the Exodus writer, the tradition of miraculous provision of water from a rock is not simply about geology or atoms of hydrogen and oxygen. This isn't a science lesson, nor is it about what human beings need to survive. It was about a people desperate to know where is God in relation to us? Is God here now? That's the people's struggle. They may think that they need water, and they do, but really their complaints, their idea is that God has abandoned us. God called us from that, and then he's disappeared. Our complaints are not so much physical as they are spiritual in nature. Where is God in relation to us? Locating the story of water from the rock within this broader nexus of the Horeb traditions in Exodus suggests another dimension to the question, is the Lord among us or not? The Hebrew expression translated among us, bakir benu, means literally in our inner organs. And so perhaps also something like, is God in our dry throats? Is God in our cramping muscles? Is God in our racing hearts? Is God in our anxious and nervous energy? Is God hearing our complaints? We become so isolated in the desert. We become, we become so dependent on the things around us. And yet the little fox crawls back in. God is a provider, and we see that time and time again. Yet the little fox wants to remind us that maybe God isn't so much a provider, and maybe you were better off. This little fox of nostalgia, 
this little fox of what were you like before God stepped in? My life was good. I feel pretty good about things. God took away an identity, a place of belief in myself. Yes, they wish to know if God is present in their midst and if presence is more than a notion or a metaphor. They seem to also ask, when we are suffering, does God know it? When we are suffering, does God care? When we are faint and close to death, can God feel it the way we feel it? We're so close to death at all times and God says, here I am. You know what the word nostalgia means in Greek? It's a combination of the word homecoming and sorrow. It's a sadness, a longing to go home. It's a, it's a sadness, it's a bittersweet remembrance of the way things used to be. I'm starting to become old enough to feel nostalgia now. I'll see a TV commercial from the 90s on YouTube, or I'll eat a cosmic brownie from Little Debbie, or I'll feel or, or hear a theme song to a show from Nickelodeon, and I'll be like, oh man, I want to watch that show so bad. Because it reminds me of a time and a place where things were different that I didn't have the problems that I have today. I don't have the responsibilities that I have today. We long to return home. And the people complained. They said, why did you bring us out to the desert to die? We were perfectly happy to die in Egypt. We were perfectly happy to die where we were. So why bring us to this spot? He goes to the rock where God is present. God calls him to the desert, but then he calls him to this rock and says, do you want to be provided for? Do you want something new? Do you want the spiritual waters to flow into your life? You have to trust me. I'm leading you there. But he goes to the rock where God is present, which is interesting because later Paul will associate this rock with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the clouds and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. And so as God ordered, Moses struck the rock, and life-giving water gushed forth. And we call on that rock now. We call on Christ. We call on Jesus. He is that rock from which the waters flow. When we feel that isolation, when we feel that desperate need for something living, for something flowing, for some new hope of life, is God here with me? Is God present? Where is God now that I'm suffering? Remember the abandonment that Jesus felt on the cross. Remember Jesus did not dance his way to the cross. Jesus was not filled with joy this was great sorrow as he returned home. 
This was great sorrow as his father saw his sin hanging there and said, I do not know you, but come into my arms. The great abandonment that Jesus felt. Before we criticize the Israelites too severely, though, we should note that they are not only on a journey through the wilderness, they're also on a journey of the soul being transformed from an earlier existence as an enslaved people to that of an independent nation. Unlearning these habits, it's difficult. It's grinding work. It's cruel work in those moments. God needs some time with his people. God needs to bring them to the desert. He needs to bring them to desperate places Because only then can they see that God is already working. God is already providing. God is already bringing them to the places where life exists. It's painful, but it's patient and rewarding work. And so, when we get into those moments of isolation, when we get into those moments where we feel desperate, when we feel like God is absent... God's preparing our hearts. God's believing that you need to be in this spot to be stretched, to be pulled. Because there's something in you that doesn't fully trust God. And when we give up our right to water, when we give up that very thing that we need to survive, to live, and we say, God, you know what? I'm going to be fully dependent on you for this now. That's where God wants our hearts to be. Not in a posture of like, oh, I'll find it myself. I'll do it myself. I'll I'll build my own monuments to you, God. If you build the house, you can come and live in it. But God is not saying those things to us. He's saying to us, listen, you need to go through this because I have something even greater for you on the other side. The Israelites have replaced their belief with hostility. They've exchanged their trust and their faith in God with hostility and a longing for the way things used to be. We don't want to be your people if this is what that means. I don't want to be a pastor for your church, God, if it means that I only preach to three people sometimes. I can't do it because there's no life in that. (laughs) when I'm telling the person who gives me life in the first place those things. He says, meet me there. Meet me in the desert. Show up in the desert with me and you will be blown away. We have this experience of a God who is loving and kind and wants to meet us in those places of isolation. I'm not saying it's easy to answer the question, is God here with me now? I'm not saying that it's easy to just give up your claim on everything and say, God, you take it. You do these things. But there's going to be a time when not only you, but the people around you are saying, where is God? The great 
writer, author, Nobel Prize winning. Ellie Wiesel, who wrote the incredible Holocaust survivor story, Night, was recalling a time in the concentration camps where they were watching people from their very cell block die, the people that he had shared bunks with. They were being pulled out, and they were being hanged there in front of everyone as a warning. This is what happens when you disobey. And the people were crying, and they were wailing, and they were looking at the bodies hanging in the yard arms as a reminder that they weren't in control. And looking at his people, a people that he shared bunk with, he shared meals with, a woman next to him starts sobbing and cries out, where is God? How could God let this happen? Where is God now that we need him? And Ellie turns to her and points at the man hanging there, dead, limp, and says, that's God there. They lifted him up and they killed him. There's going to be times where we come to those places where we say, where is God? What have we done with him? Have we invited him in? Have we met him in those places that he's called us to or have we been too afraid? Have we longed for better times and better places? Have we longed to return home? Have we listened too much for those little foxes that have come in and said, you know what, God has brought me so far. Can I just take a moment and be grateful for that? I could be so much happier if I just returned to Egypt, if I just went back to the way things used to be, if we just could go back to pre-COVID. I look at, I look at uh, TV shows from 2017, and I'm like, oh, those people. Oh, enjoy that time that you have. I look at TV shows from 1998 and 99 and 2000, and I say, oh, the world is about to change, people. Hold on to what you have. Don't waste this. And then I start to think, maybe I could go back in time and go back to just live in 1999 for a little while before the entire world lost its mind. But God says, I'm bringing you here for a reason. I'm bringing you here so that you can meet me at the rock. And here's the best part of this story that we almost skipped right over. It says, it notes in there, and the writer of Exodus is so smart to do this. It's the staff, and he says almost in parentheses, that Moses used to touch the Nile. And what's the story of the Nile? They take water that's essential for life, and they make it undrinkable with the staff. Moses touches the Nile, and it turns to blood. Undrinkable. And God says, listen to me, trust me, and take that same staff that you used to turn the water undrinkable, and now I will turn this water into something drinkable for you. In fact, it will come from a rock. It will come from where there is no life. It will come from a place where there is death, a something that was never, ever alive, and you can split it open, and there will be water in abundance, and you will have your fill. Don't doubt my power. 
come into my presence and we only meet him halfway. We only meet him halfway and we say, God, how come I can't feel you? How come you're not here? And the Israelites wandered for 40 years wondering why they ever left Egypt. Where are we wandering today? Where are we wandering in places that we wonder why God even took us from there? When we're in these moments, when we're in these desert places, these are opportunities for us to express gratitude, to be joyful, to live in the moment, to say, God, you have brought me so far. And I can't wait to see what comes next.